0: So we're going to start a new sermon series today. I like that. We spent a decade in the Sermon on the Mount. So now we're going to switch gears and we're going to go into the book of Ephesians. And what I want you to hear today is that God has chosen you to be part of his will and part of his redemptive plan. See, what the book of Ephesians will do to you, It will take you from being man-centered, even in your religion, even in your faith, even in your relationship with God, to being God-centered. This book will change your viewpoint. Because so many times, we look at life, we look at our direction, we look at the road we're on, and we think we're fitting God into our will. We think we're fitting God into our plans. But what is really going on is God has pursued us, God has tracked us down, and he's incorporated us into his redemptive plan and his will. This is so important for your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of grace, and to mature in your faith is to understand this is all about God. And by his grace, he has incorporated us into his plan and we get to partake in the redemptive plan. We get to be in a relationship with God. And it brings the most satisfaction and the most joy you could ever have in your life. It's horrible to be me-centered. It's horrible to even have a face, uh, uh faith in a philosophy that is man-centered, and to build the world around you at the center. But we find truth and we are free when we realize it's all about Jesus. And even our salvation is not that we found Jesus, but that he found us. Of course we responded to put our faith in God, and we have free will. It's all part of a loving relationship. But he tracked us down. And Jesus would even say that to people. He'd say, "You didn't choose me. I chose you." So I want your perspective and your philosophy to start changing so you can experience the grace of God. It will change your life and to revel in this joy that God has chosen you to be part of his redemptive plan. So my daughter's in the second year of basketball. She wants to play basketball. We're in the second season. So she was on a new team this year. So I bring her to practices. We got the worst slot in the week Thursday night at 8. Who wants to go at the house Thursday night at 8 to play basketball? Me sometimes because I love basketball too much. But So Thursday night at 8, I bring Talia to practice. I bring her to the first practice. And um, they had one coach, and I got to meet the coach after, and we got in a conversation because uh, sometimes I have the privilege of writing for the Wakefield paper, all the clergy write in town for the Wakefield paper, and I wrote something on basketball just by chance, how God, you know, just loving basketball, God gives us things we love in our life to enjoy, all these kind of things. So when we got past his awe that I was actually the pastor of the church, we started to build a relationship. I got an email that week. Do you want to help me coach? I didn't want to help coach. I went there and said, I can't put another thing on my plate. I don't want to coach. I'm a bivocational pastor. I don't have any more time to put anything on my plate. So I got the email. I said, oh, man, how am I going to say no, right? We all know how. How am I going to work this no in there graciously? But I started thinking about it, and my daughter wanted me to play she wanted me to coach so bad. She's like, Dada, you got to coach Dada. I was like, no, don't you dare say that. You're going to get punished. <laughs> you know, Dada, you got to do it. Come on. And I'm like, finally made it. It took me like three or four days to say, okay, let's go for this. Now that you think I should do it, this or that? Let's. Family decision said, go for it. It was the greatest season you could imagine. You could imagine, we were the Ninja Turtles, right? We made it all the way to the championship. I wore my Ninja Turtles t-shirt. No one expected it's fifth and sixth grade for the whole town. We're all fifth graders. We made it to the championship. I'm talking like, and you know me, there's no level. If I'm playing the NBA or I'm coaching fifth and sixth grade, there's like no, there's no line for me. Like in the championship game, they said, don't come on the court. I'm like, am I really getting told this in a fifth and sixth grade Basketball game. Like, there's no line with me. I need a lot of grace. And so it was just a great season. I got to help out running some practices and just be there. Assistant coach, I was an assistant, so I just kind of come on, turtles. And so again, the championship game was great. Talia scored more points in one game. I know it's the second week, boasting of it, than she did all season. You know, just change the momentum, fade away, dropping buckets. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. We win an OT of the championship. I'm talking about going crazy. Like, they're lined up for pictures. All the fifth and sixth grade girls came to watch from the town. People are surrounded us taking pictures. I said, this is getting bananas. But it was one of the greatest, like, I looked back and said, thank God that coach chose to ask me to be part of the season. I didn't even want to. I wasn't even seeking it. Like, I was like, I don't want a coach. Like, No. But thank God he chose to ask me, and he chose to incorporate me into that team. And he gave me the privilege of even being an assistant coach. And he texted me at the end of the season and said, what a great season. Thank you for being a part of it. I said, thank you for asking me. Thank you for choosing to ask me. It's the same way with our faith, is it not? Some of us here, you were not looking for God. You better stop lying to yourself. You weren't looking for God. And he tracked you down because of his ferocious grace. And he said, come with me. Come with me. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to change your trajectory. I'm going to put you on the road of salvation, the road of glory. And it's not even going to end here. It's going to go into eternity. That's what I want you guys to hear. Because are we not sinners saved by grace? God chose us to be part of this beautiful plan in a much more grand way. We'll look back and say, thank you, Lord for the privilege that you allowed me to be part of your will and your redemptive plan. Amen. So we're going to go to Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. And this is going to be more of an introductory and informative message. So I want us to grow matur- maturity and knowledge of the Scriptures. So this is going to be more of an introduction to Ephesians, kind of laid a foundation as we learn in the coming months to shape our souls towards God and in light of the gospel. So it's going to be informative. And, um, of course, we're throwing the gospel in there, pepper the whole thing. So Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, you see how we do. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to start here. I want to talk to you about the author of Ephesians. Of course, we ultimately know that the Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures. He carried men along to write the Scriptures. They're authoritative, they're inerrant, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the man he chose to carry along and write these Scriptures to through was the Apostle Paul. So I want to, for those of you who know, some of you might have grown up church. We know people, many people here didn't. I want to give you the background of who Apostle Paul was so you can understand It helps shape how you understand this book of Ephesians. His original name was Saul. This is how God gets down. He usually takes you and changes your name. You know, Saul, Paul, Abram, Abraham. That's just how he gets down. He was Saul of Tarsus. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Most likely, historically, he was from a prominent family. He's from the Pharisaical party. Paul was a zealous man intelligent, top-notch brain, top-notch. Everything he did, he did with zeal and he did with passion. Incredibly, incredibly intelligent. He studied the scriptures all the way growing up with zeal. Might even be able to say that he outdid his peers. I'll put it in that way. He even proclaimed himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. I just want you guys to hear how this description, we'll turn there and we got that on the board too, but Philippians 3, 5, and 6. This is Paul talking about himself and they drove him to this point, right? They drove him to this point because people were questioning his authority as an apostle and you'll know, you'll understand from his background. He said, circumcised on the eighth day, everyone who was a Hebrew from the Jewish people, you that you had to adhere to the law and you got circumcised on the eighth day. The tribe of Benjamin, he says, the Hebrew of Hebrews. That's big talk right there. That's big talk in the covenant people of God. A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the right as to righteousness, which is the law, found blameless. Do you see who Paul is right here? He's from the Pharisees. Now, what did Jesus just do to all the Pharisees in the last Sermon on the Mount? He outed them. This is the, the party Paul's from. Because he was so good and so intelligent at what he did and took everything so serious and did it with everything he was, he quickly rose up the ranks. He was actually authority and the leader and carried the clout of the persecution of the early Christian church. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Paul was the man that tracked down the Christians, that tracked down everyone who believed in Jesus, threw him in jail, beat him, and very possibly there were even some murders involved. He was there when the first person was killed in the name of Jesus. Paul. And he was for it. Do you guys hear what kind of man this is? Now his appearance, historically it says, he was a little brother. One for the little brothers in the house. Small dude. Balding. Stout though. They said he was, he was built like a rock. Hook nose, unibrow. Paul wasn't in the vanity department. Do you understand with me? Mean? Even the scriptures say he wasn't even a spectacular preacher. He was just so devout. You know, there was nothing in him. According to appearance, he could even be considered like, why do you choose this guy? He's got a unibrow, hooked nose, and he's not very tall. you got to choose the handsome brothers, right? Oh, God doesn't looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. He chooses Paul. And he changes this man's life forever. You see on the road to Damascus, and if you read, you go into the book of Acts and you read it, you'll see that he was breathing all kinds of violence on the road to Damascus. I'm talking about he woke up, his mission every day was to quench and to put the church out. It was to eliminate and extinguish the church. That's what he woke up breathing. That's my mission in life. I got to stop this movement. He's on the road to Damascus. What happens? What happens on this road? No plans. He's breathing. He's going to extinguish the church. He runs into the resurrected Lord. Jesus reveals himself to him. Do you guys see how Paul wasn't seeking him? Resurrected Jesus shows up to him, stops him in his tracks, and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, what are you talking about? Paraphrase, paraphrase. What do you mean I'm persecuting you? And this is the crazy part. Paul thinks he's doing the will of God. Right? He says, as far as religion, found blameless. As far as the law, fallen every little iota of the law. He says, what do you mean I'm persecuting you? I'm doing the will of God. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're persecuting me. In my church. He changed his life forever. Paul went blind. He sent to a disciple of Jesus. Even the disciple of Jesus, when God, through a dream, (coughs) reveals to him that Paul is going to come his way, so he's going to pray for him, he's going to be healed. Even the disciple of Jesus says, not this guy. Do you know who this guy is? He has the authority to put me in jail. He has done me have me arrested and beat, beaten. Even the church is saying, you can't be calling this guy. But I want you to read with me one more time another scripture. This is what God says to the man who questions that Paul's called. This is so powerful. But the Lord said to him when we responded, he responded, and said, Do you know who Paul is? He said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. What do you see there? God chose before the foundation of the world, that Paul was going to be a chosen instrument to proclaim his gospel. Paul had no plans of that. He was on a road, breathing violence, thought he was doing the will of God. Jesus changes the whole trajectory of his life to the fact that he's writing this book of Ephesians. You know how many books Paul wrote in the New Testament? 14. I would say 14, Someone would say 13. Because some people question the authorship of Hebrews. But I would attribute that to Paul also. Fourteen books he wrote. This is a man who opposed Jesus, was the enemy of God. And all of a, all of a sudden, Jesus changes him. Changes his direction and recalls him, incorporates him into the redemptive plan of God to now we're still learning from Paul today. Do you guys see the power of that? Unbelievable. Let's talk about Ephesus. So we got the author. You got the background. This is who wrote it. He wrote it from prison. All right, which is crazy because the tone is Thanksgiving of Ephesians. When's the last time you were in shackles just writing good poems? ha, <laughs> ha. You don't do that unless the most important and vital thing has happened to you. You've been awakened to the truth of the gospel and Jesus Christ has been revealed to you. That's the only way you can write from prison with that kind of joy that I've been chosen for this kind of glory before the foundation of the world. That's when the gospel takes absolute root. So let's talk about Ephesus. Because this is written to the church in Ephesians to build them up, to comfort them, to strengthen them. Ephesus was the largest um, city in the Asiatic, uh, Asiatic Turkey. So it was it's modern-day Turkey. Is where Ephesus was. There was a large road that went all the way through Ephesus with pillars on the other side. A lot of trade going through Ephesus, all the way down to the dock. It was like it, w- it was a prominent city of the day. Meaning there was about thirty-three thousand to fifty-six thousand people there. That's big balling back then, and I, yeah, back then, so a lot of trade. A lot of jewelry, a lot of people, things coming in through the dark, all those kind of things. That was Ephesus. The central part of the city was the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. Crazy stuff. This is where the center of everything, this is where people go to worship a statue of a woman, which they claim fell from the sky, Jupiter. Listen, this is real stuff. This shaped the culture of this whole city. Diana was supposed to be the goddess of fertility, okay? And I'll try to say this in a very... She had, try to describe how she looked, 50 breasts, okay? Some people think they were eggs is some argument historically because she was the goddess of fertility. Her arms rested on serpents. She had a crown. People would bring sacrifices, cows, pigs. They would leave bull, you know what's hanging from her because she was a goddess of fertility. Just this is kind of stuff that was going on. People would worship. If you were devotee to Diana, what you would do is women would give themselves to two years of prostitution to provide for the treasury for the temple of Diana. So two years they give their life to support that treasury. This is the kind of stuff that's going on in Ephesus. It was the center. Um, actually... She was called the Lady of Ephesus, even though Diana, if you look into Greek mythology, was considered the brother of Apollo, right? But Greek mythology and idolatry and all that kind of stuff affected culture big time back then. I mean, there's still idolatry today. It's just different. There ain't a statue dropped in the middle of town. There's still idolatry. Men's hearts are the same. It's just different stuff. But people worshipped this goddess Diana. A statue in the middle of town shaped everything. There was immorality. This is who they worshipped. This is who they made a temple to. This is where their pride was. It was also known for being culturally advanced. So they had the best gymnasiums, the best public baths. They were known to be a school of philosophy. People come to the theater of Ephesus and other things. And people enjoy that. A lot of theater, a lot of plays going on around town and those kind of things. They were culturally advanced, Ephesus. But there was a large margin between those who enjoyed culture and the poor. So if you worked down by the docks, you were filthy. You were dirty. You didn't get experience culture. You were poor. A lot of disease like malaria and those kind of things spread through the poor and it wouldn't affect those who are enjoying culture. Just to set the kind of context that was going on there. It's immoral. Much of the culture is corrupt. There's a big margin and people aren't taking care of the poor and they're not worshiping God. Okay? You got that sent? Paul from jail is writing to a church that's set in that kind of culture. And the amazing thing that happens here is he addresses them as saints. Now, I don't know what your idea of a saint is. Like, who do you label a saint? What does a saint have to do? I think we set these unrealistic expectations because we built ourselves on works, right? Only certain people reach sainthood. That's not what the Bible teaches. The only reason we sometimes think people are saints and don't label other people saints is because of how God moved on their behalf. Think about it. Because if you really logically go through and think about it, let's start with Moses. You'd be like, that man was a saint. Saw at least five of his movies, three of them I liked. Right? Moses has got to be a saint. Moses was a stutterer. That means he wasn't good at speaking. Moses was a murderer. You making saints murderers now? Right? Moses, when God said, go, let the people go. And because you, you think of Charlton Heston, don't you? I hope it's not Christian Bale. I didn't see it, but it wasn't that good. I think of Charlton Heston. Moses, when God is speaking to him, burning bush, miracles come through. He says, go, say, let my people go. What does Moses say? I can't do it. I can't do it. Do you know who really said, let my people go? Aaron, because Moses was too chicken. That's what your Bible teaches us, right? But we label him a saint. We label him a saint because how God moved on his behalf. Any brother who's pot and seized by God's power and calling down stuff from the sky, saint, right? That's easy for us. Then we go to David. Okay, I think everyone say, heart after God, what a saint. What a saint. Adulterer. Murderer. Only reason we ever call David a saint. David, Dave, I'm calling him Dave now. The only reason we ever call David a saint, right, is because of how God moved on his behalf. Taking down the giant. We all remember that. Becoming probably the greatest king in Israel's history. Like, we call him a saint because of how God moved on his behalf. How about Peter? I just want to run through the New Testament, too. How about Peter? Peter's a saint. The rock. Really? The coward who denied Jesus three times in the worst time of Jesus getting accused and sent to the cross? That's your saint? If you're going by that system? Only reason we believe Peter should be a saint is because of how God moved on his behalf. Right? Now we get to Paul. Persecutor of the church. He's labeled a saint because of how God moved on his behalf. I say all those and use those examples because we all are saints because of how God's moved on his behalf. You guys hear what I'm preaching? That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches every person who's been washed clean and changed and chosen has put their faith in Jesus on the cross is a saint because of how Christ has moved on their behalf. Not because of their perfection, but because of Christ's perfection. Because of Christ's imputed righteousness. Because God has chosen to incorporate you into his plan. That's why Paul feels fully comfortable addressing each one of you and the church's Ephesus as saints. You comfortable with that? I'm not fully, but I know it's truth. I mean with myself, not you guys. Right? See, systems of works put people up who we think do better works. But the gospel takes everyone here and Jesus here and makes us all saints. So that's important to know because God has chosen you. And there's something says in there, not only to receive grace, but to give grace. It says grace to you because Paul has received the grace. Now he's given us grace. I heard a beautiful thing this week. Someone told me that it's someone who is has struggled with addiction, is having um, a great run overcoming addiction, is doing well, and um, they said they wanted to go to and speak at a detox, right? They wanted to go to a detox, and they wanted to share their story so other people can overcome addiction. So they received that grace, and now they want to go share that grace, right? That amazed me. I, I was just amazed, that I said, how awesome is that? That's a person who understands that grace isn't meant to just be taken. It's meant to be given, you know? There are going to be times in your life that you're blown away at what God allows you to do, and you'll say, you'll have the what the heck am I doing here moments? You ever know those? What the heck did I just say? Why am I acting like that? That's absolutely crazy, you know? I remember when I was younger, and I was 19 years old, and, and God had just told me, awakened me to the truth of the gospel. Like, I'm totally, totally 180. And someone asked me to preach at a DYS. I write down in Dorchester. So I went down to Dorchester, and they said, just tell your story and preach the gospel. I said, all right, let's do this. They dropped me in in Dorchester, dropped me there and say, preach. There's 49 guys there, right, 49 teenagers. And I just stopped preaching the gospel. And I come from a Pentecostal church, so I was even more just like, let's do this, you know what I mean? Now I got a seatbelt on, still charismatic, but seatbelt. Some famous pastors talked about that. They dropped me in there. I just stopped preaching to God. 49 people. And at the end, I say, anyone who wants to put their faith in Jesus, stand up now. We'll pray for you. Put your faith in Jesus. That's 49 people. I'm freshly changed. You know, I don't even know. I'm just, you know. 47 people get up and accept Jesus. I said, what the heck just happened? I said, I was expecting a high percentage. Just two stubborn brothers sitting there. Could have been a better story, right? (laughs) 47 people get up. You know what happened to me? I went from, how the heck? Because I know myself. We all know ourselves, right? We know we're sinners saved by grace. We know that God continues to show us grace. And all of a sudden, God uses us to show grace to others. And we're like, we have that moment where we say, what just happened? God just used me in his plan to proclaim his gospel so people are accepting Jesus? That's bananas, right? We all are going to have moments like that in different arenas, in different capacities. And you probably already have, you know? Some of you lift your hand and say, what the heck am I doing singing this song? Right? Or what the heck am I doing coming to church every week? I hate that. What am I doing giving to the church? I'm so cheap. Like you have those aha moments and you're like, what just happened to me? God has chosen you to be part of your will. The Holy Spirit has come into your life, and he's changing and sanctifying you. So even this year, tomorrow, today, you're going to look back and say, I can't believe I've only received grace, but now I'm extending grace to people. This is unbelievable that I get b- to be part of the will of God. Some people on the music team, right? Let's move on different examples. You're going to have these aha moments where you say, "Am I? Do I really get the privilege of leading people to praise the one and only true magnificent God? What a privilege that God's incorporated you into that. Some of you held low in the kids ministries, kids ministry. What an honor you get to help raise kids in maturity to know Jesus. That's like, do I? Am I really doing this?" Some of you on the setup team, you're just moving that chair like, do I really get to do this? You need to look at it like that. <laughs> right? Like David said, I'd just be a doorkeeper in your house. If I could be a doorkeeper, I'd be happy forever. But it's true. Make me a doorkeeper in this plan. Give me a lamp to set up. If I get to be part of this plan of redemption. This is unbelievable. Some of you have brought people to church and shared the gospel and you're going to get to see them baptized and you get to see them saved and you're going to weep because you're going to say, do I really get to be part of this redemptive plan? Did I really get to proclaim the most powerful message and reality on earth? Did I really get to know God and be part of this awesome and eternal plan? Amen? It's just unbelievable that we get to do anything this will of God, the will of decree, right? He chose before he even created anything that all those who have put their faith in Christ, that you would be part of this awesome plan. I want you guys to revel in that. And that's the foundation we're laying. You got the author, you got the culture, and you got the fact that you've been chosen to be part of the will of God. Enjoy every moment of it. Amen.